podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. It is the worst football I've ever seen. I'm coming back to England, man, and I'm keeping my titles. I just remember the atmosphere was incredible. I think that was one of the games that I couldn't wait to get out of. That that was a really important moment in winning the bid as well. Yeah, it just puts you on the spot. Like you just kind of done there with me. <laughs> At least you joined in. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. This podcast has been set up by Technolwood School and our aim is to teach our students new skills through podcasting. Each week we chat to famous sportsmen and women from around the world. We delve deep into their sporting careers, their highs and lows, and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. All of our students' hard work and dedication has paid off, as we have recently won a Global Sports Podcast Award for the Best Equality in Social Sports Podcast. That's enough from me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, which are our students who host the podcast, and I will let them introduce today's guest. Thank you. Technowood School is a school for autistic children and young adults. I set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to, to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Join us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former Irish rugby player. Welcome to the podcast, Gordon Murphy. It's Jordan, it's spelled a little bit different, Tom. It's, it's, it's perfect, actually. It's a nice way to start, Tom, because actually when I was born... My family. I'm the youngest of six kids, and, and my dad was a um, my dad was the army. My dad was called George G E O R G E, and I, when I was born, was going to be called George. And after sort of three or four days with my older brothers and sisters, they thought oh, we can't have two Georges in the house, so they changed it to Jordan, but they kept the start of G E O R uh, and just put D A N at the end. So everybody, my whole life has always got my name wrong because they see G-O-R and they say Gordon, but it's actually Jordan. So thank you. It's not a problem. Good way to start. Okay. <laughs> we like to set our podcasts with some quick fire questions before we start talking about your rugby career. Are you ready? Perfect. I'd love to do quick fire with you. All right. Okay, here we go. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Uh, Ryan O'Driscoll. If you could trade lives with every with anyone for, for a day, who would it be and why? President of the United States of America for one day. Last question. You can stop one crime forever, but the way you stop it from ever happening again is by committing that crime yourself. After you've committed it, that crime will never happen again anywhere in the world. What crime are you choosing and why? It's a great it's actually the best question I've ever been asked, Tom. That is an amazing, amazing question because it creates so many moral and and things that are just going alarms in my head saying that I would commit a crime, the most heinous of crime that I can probably imagine. Um, but in order to take it away from the world for the rest of the day, uh, there's so many, there's so many. I'm thinking murder. I'm thinking something probably we shouldn't talk about, but um Yeah. Yeah. Let's not mention the thing you're thinking, because I think we're let's, all thinking let's, the same let's thing. Let's say let's say murder. But I, again, okay. there's a, and there's a few people who I would choose to murder. So, <laughs> committing murder to stop murder forever seems like a tiny price to pay. Yeah, it does. It does. And there's a few people on my list as well. Anyway, so it, it might be. Oh difficult. no! <laughs> who were your sporting heroes growing up, and how did you get into rugby in the first place? So I had lots of different sporting heroes when I was a kid. I loved all different types of sport. Um, football, soccer in Ireland was, was very um, uh, a big thing when I was a kid. So I had heroes like Ronnie Whelan, Ray Houghton, John Aldridge, Irish football players. Um, I always admired Pele, the great Brazilian footballer. Uh, I, had, I sort of used to watch videos of him back in a long time ago now. Uh, and his skill set was amazing in football. And there was a boxer called Barry McGuigan, who I loved, an Irish boxer who did brilliantly as well, who I was a huge fan of. In rugby, uh, I liked Irish players, but I also was a big fan of two players, a French player called Serge Blanco and an Australian called David Campisi. Um, as a young player, as a youngster, sort of probably around 10, 11, 12, they were the guys that, that I pretended to be in the garden. So they're they some of the guys from rugby and, and the world of sport that I liked. You just mentioned um, David Campisi. We, we chatted to him on the podcast a while ago, and he was a really nice person to chat to. 
Well, you're very lucky, Tom, because I've never spoken to David Campisi, but I was somebody found a fan of Leicester Tigers where I played for a long time, found that out once, and they gave me, presented me a sock that that he owned. So I am, um, I uh, I still have a, one of David Campisi's touring socks. The sock was washed, right? I, I actually don't know that, to be quite honest. I, I, I don't know. I, I think he, David, similar to myself in rugby, he, he prided himself on not being tackled and being very creative. So it, it is reasonably clean, but I'm assuming that, that that was worn. Welcome back to the part of the podcast where we're looking at photos of famous sports and images. I've got a photo here in front of Tom and Alyssa, and they're going to do their best to explain what they can see in the photo. So we've got a very iconic sporting moment and welcome back at the end of the episode and give you the answer. So this is a very memorable um, football moment um, and someone is getting ready to do a header by the looks of it. Uh, it's He's wearing a number one shirt. And... and- the one closest to the ball is wearing a number zero, and together the image looks kind of like they're together making a ten. So maybe these two know each other and are doing this on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> so I think so. One person in the photo is wearing a number one shirt, and this person who's jumping for the ball, you can only see the number zero, but I think he's got a number one. There's also yeah. he's number ten. So you've got two people jumping for the ball. Number one's jumping for the ball, and number ten's jumping for the ball. So what's number 10 doing? Well, it looks, well, for one, he's in the air. And two, it looks like he's also trying to do a header. But it all, it also looks like the ball might accidentally get his arm. Which might hurt. Which is about cat as a handball. Uh, and then also in the background, it almost, it almost ironically looks like the England player is trying to give him a warning that it's like a handball because of the arm. Um, and he's also got uh, shorts with the number three on it. Uh, you moved to Le- Leicester to go to university. Did you always plan on wanting to play for the Leicester Tigers, or do you choose to go to Leicester because of the university? Uh, no, I, I actually ended up coming to Leicester to play rugby. Uh, and I, my, one of the conditions that my dad had when I left home from Ireland as an 18, 19 year old was that I had. To go to university so Leicester had offered me a contract uh, and I was coming here to play rugby which was my sort of life ambition I didn't ever think I was good enough to play professional rugby um, so it wasn't something I was really focused on so when I got the opportunity I decided I wanted to come but my, my dad had said I had to study I had to go to university so um, that was something I did as a byproduct of being a rugby player really. Is it true that when you joined Leicester that you live with England captain uh, Martin Johnson's parents? That is very true. So when I came over first um, as a youngster, I was coming, I came on a three-week trial uh, and I was over um, trained on the first day in the training ground and I managed to go back to the uh, the house I was staying at later on that afternoon in, in Burnmill Road in Market Harbour. And as I walked in, I saw lots of different pictures of Martin Johnson all over the room. Uh, and... Then Martin Johnson himself came through and introduced me to his parents where I was staying in his bedroom for the for that three weeks. He wasn't living there at the time, but I lived with his parents. Uh, and then when I got offered a contract at the end of the three weeks, um, I sort of said oh, I needed to go home and get everything. My bags packed. I was going to be moving over. I was back home in Ireland for three or four weeks. And when I came back, I didn't have anywhere to live. So uh, the same family took me in again for another three months until I could find a, an apartment in, in the centre of Leicester, which I actually ended up renting from the current English forwards coach, Richard Cockrell, for a couple of years. You started playing for Leicester a couple of years after rugby became a professional sport. Did this help you as a teenager coming coming into a professional team and did some of the older players find it difficult to adapt to a more professional setup? Yeah, so rugby as a sport only went professional in 1995-96. So I joined Leicester at sort of 1997-98. And before then, it had been an amateur sport where um, guys would train on a Tuesday night and a Thursday night and then play on a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, And it it was, it's a great sport, but it had all of the sort of the hallmarks of just doing things for fun. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with that. After the game went professional, I, I think it took a few years to really get the balance right because... In the beginning, people thought professionalism was turning up at nine o'clock on a Monday morning and leaving at nine o'clock or sort of nine at five on a Monday afternoon. And that was every day of the week. And 
Um, sport isn't really like that. I think particularly endurance sports where you have to sort of, you know, be physical and, and be explosive. Um, so for the first few years, it was, although rugby was professional, it still had a very amateur ethos about it. And there still was a, a, a strong amateur feel in rugby, even until probably 2000. Um, I think in around after the World Cup in 1999, teams started becoming a lot more professional with their nutrition, with their trainers, with their coaches, with their analysis. Um, and it really sort of became the sport that, you know, or that was the beginnings of the sport that we see today. Uh, nowadays, you know, coaching is incredibly intense. There's a huge amount of work that unseen work that goes into it. Uh, so uh, it wasn't necessarily there back in the late 90s, but it did sort of begin to turn in around 2000. Leicester had a great few seasons from 1999 to 2002. In this period, you won two Heineken Cups and you won four Premiership titles. What made that team so good? And is there a certain season or game that stands out for you? Uh, when when I joined Leicester in, in the 1997-98 season, um, Leicester hadn't won uh, a trophy in, in a little while. So it was a really nice opportunity to look at the culture and look at what we needed to be, the, the vision and the strategy that we were going to take into the next sort of period of time. And we were very lucky that we had some great coaches pave the way in, in Bob Dwyer. But when Dean Richards, who's a real Leicester club man, took over, um, he put some great structures in place for us to be successful, uh, the way we were going to play and, and the way we were going to be as human beings on and off the field. Um, I was very lucky to have great teammates. We were very, very lucky to have some very skillful players, but all those guys were very, very good players. And we won, as you said, four premierships and two European Cups in, in that four-year block with six trophies in four years was uh, very, very special. Um, and I guess that's that's what I would probably attribute it to. It was a very, very strong culture. Uh, and Players were very keen to compete and, and win uh, for each other but there was a huge amount of trust in the team as well so we were very very lucky really um, and that's kind of what I saw consistently throughout my career and that block finishing in 2003 uh, just before England won the World Cup you know you look at the successes I was very lucky again to win another four premiership trophies and but I also lost in, in six premiership finals over the course of my career as well so ups and downs and what makes Leicester or what any, makes any team good is, is very much uh, in around culture. How would you say through the years have you handled um, losses? Like, how have they helped you improve? You know, when you, when you have a block like you talked about from 1998 to 2002, where you win pretty much everything, sometimes you, you can take success for granted. Um, you can be a little bit complacent. And it's not until you start losing that you kind of think how much it matters and how important it is to you. So I think every loss is, is an, a learning opportunity. So you can really look back and, and kind of see how you can be better and how you can improve. Um, I think some some of the, the, the nature of the beast is, is you know, teams are, and the premiership is more competitive and teams are were, were sort of really analysing us very, very well. And you can see what, you know, good coaching did in around sort of semi-final and final, finals times. Um, but um, I, I guess you try and learn lessons from when, you know, things don't go well. 2001, you won a close... Heineken. Heineken Cup final against... Stade Francais. Stade Francais in Paris. Yes. That must have been a very, very, very long, long airplane ride. <laughs> it was. You won 34 to 30. What are your memories of that game? That, I would say, was probably one of my most memorable club games of rugby. Um, because we played against a team called uh, Stade Francais, their home venue was in Paris. So effectively, we paid them... 100 metres down from their home venue, which was a home game for them. Um, it was very difficult. Leicester had lost in a big final in 1996 in Cardiff to Breve, uh, and there was a lot of scars from a lot of people. And, and I remember we had, a, as I said, a really tight group, a tight team that were incredibly trustful of each other, but you know, great um, <clears throat> amount of ability in that side. And I can remember we went over, we stayed in a place called Versailles, which is outside Paris. It's a beautiful place with lots of uh, fantastic old castles and, and beautiful palaces as such and trees and, and it's a very nice place we stayed there and, and on the day we, we bust into the Parc de Prance which is a very famous stadium that they don't really use for rugby anymore but it's a natural amphitheatre which holds the sound and, and in this place was amazing we bust in and we went under underneath the stadium 
And I can remember being in, a, in an old oak changing room, lots of sort of individual uh, changing seats, and, and it felt very grand. It felt very regal. Uh, the whole place had a, a sense of pomp about it. And I can remember some really experienced players in my in my team or in Leicester's team, like Martin Johnson and Graham Rowntree and Neil Back. And it was probably the first time I'd seen some of those guys look really, really nervous. Um, and then when we walked out onto the pitch, um, there was a big standoff. The French team that we were playing against, sorry, a fly's just buzzing me. Um, <laughs> the French team that we were playing against, Stade Francais, you know, there was a big standoff on the halfway and, and we managed to uh, antagonise the referee even before we left the tunnel. Uh, and then he antagonized, antagonized. So we had a tactic we used to we used to speak and you know analyze for big games. Most teams will have a look at the referee and exactly what his traits are and what he likes to penalize and the way he likes to speak and the, and the things he likes to do. And before we played that game against uh, Stade Francais, you get to about four minutes before kickoff, and generally the referee will say, "Okay, one minute warning," and he'll knock on the door. And with that, both teams are supposed to go out and stand in the tunnel side by side. Um, but a lot of teams have a little bit of gamesmanship and particularly the French and they like to keep you waiting. So we got our knock on the door at about three minutes to, to three o'clock and our team funneled out into the into the tunnel and we were standing there. And at the top of the tunnel, there was a sliding doors and you could hear the noise and almost see the noise spilling down into the, into the tunnel. It was that electric and atmosphere. But the referee knocked on the French door and they wouldn't come out. So we were waiting and waiting and it was sort of 10 seconds. Fashionably late. Well, not so fashionably late because all it was doing was beginning to antagonise some of the players in our team who were saying, why are we waiting for them? This isn't fair. And the referee was knocking and they were refusing to come out. So eventually our captain was like, look, I'm not waiting. And the referee said, you must wait, Martin, you must wait. And he said, nah. I'm going. So we kind of disobeyed the referee and walked down onto the pitch without the opposition team. So eventually when they did come out, they had a little bit of umbrage. They were a little bit angry with us because we left without them, but they were incredibly late. They were two minutes late and they were doing it on purpose. So that just created a nice little edge. But what it did was was annoy the referee. And, and in that game, we scored four tries. And we won 34-30, but they kicked ten pen- or nine penalties and a drop kick from a player called Diego Dominguez, who was one of the best kickers in the world. And it was an incredibly close game. We scored a try right in the in the last minute and well, two minutes from the end of the game. And, and a guy, a teammate of mine called Tim Stimson, who practiced his kicking relentlessly. He was a great teammate, and he was the guy that we chose to. Or he he stepped up and, and knocked a kick over from the sideline, which was an incredibly difficult kick, but it went straight through the middle, which put us four points up, put us 34, 30 up, which meant that Stad couldn't kick a three-point penalty to to to, to win the game. Um, and they didn't. They they sort of played. We we won the game, and we had great celebrations in Paris, which is an amazing city. We had a boat down the Seine, which is the river which flows through the middle of Paris, and we saw all of the sights. Uh, and we had a, a big party for a long time. And when we got back to Leicester, we continued for a couple of days. So it was the best party I've had in a while. You were then called up to play for Ireland in 2000 and made your debut against the USA. What was it like to make your debut and play for your country? It was very special. Um, I think when you're a kid and you play any sport, you you hope to, you know, to play for that country one day. And that was very much a case for me with, with Ireland. Um, I had moved to England in 1997. So I'd been here for about three years and I actually had just qualified to through residency to play for England. Um, funnily enough, I got a phone call asking me to come and play um, for Ireland. But that was always my dream. So t- to go over and, and play um, in a warm-up game against the Barbarians, I actually twisted my ankle and, and, and tore some ligaments in my ankle. And I thought, oh, no, I, I, I know it was a little bit sore, but it wasn't too bad. And I thought I'd miss my ankle. Well, it was an uncapped match as well. So basically, I still hadn't been capped for Ireland. And I was very keen to, to, to be capped and to get a cap. So when you play your first senior international against another country, generally, you actually get one cap. It's, it's a little... Uh, sort of old school schoolboy cap and and I really wanted to go and, and I wasn't fit and I remember sort of I got left behind Ireland went on tour to Argentina USA and Canada and I got left behind for the first 10 days and then they sort of did a fitness test on me and said oh look we're, we're going to play you against the United States so I wasn't fully fit uh, I was kind of still carrying a, a torn ankle ligament but I, I strapped myself up pretty heavily and played in the game just to get capped and and did pretty well. The USA then weren't the team that they are now, and, and they they got uh, beaten pretty heavily. I think it was eighty three three, 
Um, and I scored a couple of tries, but it was an amazing experience because I had some of my family there. My brother lives in America. He lives in Boston and he was there and another brother and his wife flew out. So I had some family support there, but to stand, you know, in a line with your, your, your friends and colleagues and manage to sing your national anthem is a very special thing. So that was a, a great experience. Uh, very memorable for, for the rest of my life. How did you find the step up from club to country? Um, there, there is a step up. Um, at that stage, I probably didn't notice it, to be quite honest, because I'd been playing at a very high level at the top table in, in Europe. Um, we won the European Cup in 2001 and 2002, so I was kind of playing at a, at a reasonably high level in, in that competition. Um, I think the real step up is probably when we started playing Six Nations. Um, so I started getting more regular runs in Ireland in probably 2002, one of my first games at Lansdowne Road against Wales, a massive spike in intensity back to kind of above European Cup level, European Cup finals level. Uh, so I think it's just, you know, because there aren't as many games, there's a lot more effort put in and teams are very, very passionate. So particularly when you play, you know, the Welsh, the Scottish, the English, the French in their home stadiums, um, they're very, very physical affairs and, and there is definitely a step up in intensity in, in the Six Nations. Uh, the final game before the start of the 2003 World Cup, you broke your leg. That must have been very hard for you to deal with. Yeah, it was very hard to deal with. Um, I think before the World Cup, generally what happens is, you know, you, you, you train. The World Cup is, is happens every four years. So people, people train very, very hard um, all summer and you give up your summer. And I remember I moved away from my family. I stayed up in, in, in Northern Ireland and trained with some of the more senior members of the team. And I wanted to make a, a big, big splash on the world stage. Um, I played in, in the first two games. Generally, there's three games before the, the team is picked. And I played in the first two and felt that I'd done quite well. Um, due to an injury, I, I was told by the coaches, that, you know, could I play in the third game against Scotland in Murrayfield? And I said, of course, you know, huge honour to play for your country. I think about 20 minutes into the game, uh, we turned the ball over in the Scottish 22 and a, a, a former teammate of mine at, at Leicester, Eric Miller, had the ball and I wanted him to give me the ball so I could sort of use my speed and go to the outside. But he he carried for a little bit and, and did a switch play with me. We kind of put me into traffic and I ran into two Scottish players and, and they um, managed to snap both of the bones in my left leg, lower leg, and the tibia, oh, and, tibia and fibula. And the bones came out through my sock. Um, and that was pretty painful. Um, I, land, I landed on I the ground. I'm cringing over there. <laughs> I can remember looking at my foot and thinking I shouldn't be able to see the bottom of my foot from here. Um, so I put my hands on, on where it was sore and my foot kind of disappeared back to where it should be. Uh, and then I held it really tight. And I remember the doctor getting on and, and telling me, you know, to let go because I, I probably just twisted my ankle. And I, and I told him, no, 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 I've, I've broken my leg. But he didn't really understand how I would know that until I did take my hands away. And then he said, oh, my God, get a stretcher. And I said, I told you I've broken my leg. Um, so he, I, told, he was, um, I told you so. I, I told you so. Moment. And I actually smiled. I, it, it gave me a little smile. The, I told you so moment. Um, but after that, I, I got taken to hospital. I was treated brilliantly by a, a surgeon called Court Brown in Scotland who put a pin down my left leg. I woke up in hospital in Scotland the next day. And um, I was told, you know, you may or may not play rugby again. It's it, your career may be over. It's, it's, it's one of those things that um, it was, I can remember it being a really challenging moment. And as you say, a dark moment, but um, as, as a result, I think you become a better person and, 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 you know, you have lessons in life where you learn, you know, tough things happen, bad things happen and, and you'll get over them. And I think that's kind of what resilience is. It's the ability to bounce back and to not let things set you back too far. Yes, it's okay to feel sad. Yes, it's okay to feel down. But where does the journey start? You know, they say a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step and, and that's kind of what you have to do. So yeah. a great, great learning learning experience for me. And somebody tells me you wound up being out of play again. Yes, yes, I did. I was very lucky. I actually played a game um, probably five and a half months after that. I, I was Back. I trained very hard. I was very lucky. I had some great medical care, um, and I played a game against London Irish in February. That was August, August '03, February '04. I played a game against London Irish, and um, back end of February '04, uh, I was on the bench, and I had some very good teammates. I was told by Dean Richards, who was the coach at that stage, 
not to worry. Didn't matter what happened. I was going to only play five or 10 minutes at the end of the game just to settle my nerves and get myself back into it. Unfortunately, four or five minutes into the game, a guy called Ollie Smith got, got broken and, and I thought I was, wasn't going to be going on. And a friend of mine called Glenn Gelderbloom was, was sitting on the bench with me and I presumed he was going on because he was a centre and he was going, no, no, you're going on, Jordan. And I was very nervous, but I didn't have enough time to think about it. Before I knew it, I was running onto the field and I was playing on the wing at that time. And, and a guy called Andy Good, who's famous in, in the world of rugby now for being quite controversial, but he's a good friend of mine. He was playing fullback at the time. The very first thing London Irish did when I was on the field was kick a high ball up. And Andy Good was standing underneath it. And in rugby, you, you take ownership over a lot of things. And, and Andy chose not to and, and said from about, I was about 50 metres away, he screamed at me, right, that's yours, you catch it. So I had to charge across the field and catch a ball that he should have caught and then I got tackled and smashed by about three or four players and I was in a ruck and you know he, he st to this day he still says I should thank him because I you know I, I he he did that for me uh, I'm not sure if that's necessarily th true because I think he did it for himself but I uh, it got me into the game and and I um as it turned out you know I went on and I played for another over 10 years and I was very successful winning another four premierships and a couple of you lost in a couple of European finals, but, you know, lost in, as we said, sort of another four or five premiership finals and, and um, won some domestic cups and went to another world cup, went to two more world cups in 2007 and 2011. But I know you've got questions to, to track the timeline. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll shut up there. <laughs> um, it has recently been world mental health week, and this seems to be a good point to ask this question. How did you deal with it mentally? Because, you would have been preparing and excited for your first very World Cup, and then you break your leg. How did that affect you mentally, and how did you overcome it? Um, I said before, I think I was very lucky. I had some great friends and great family who were really supportive. Um, I think nowadays, in regards to mental health, people tell you to talk about it and to open up and, and and be very open then that was probably frowned upon a little bit people didn't necessarily share but i was very lucky to have a very tight-knit um, support network best friends and family who really knew how i was feeling and really looked after me very very well uh and i guess that's you know that's as i said you know part of what it's about it's about getting back up uh i, I think it's okay to feel bad about anything but you know, you have to turn it around. And, and I, I'm very lucky that that I had that support network and I, I can't say that I was really um, affected mentally badly by it. A few late years later in 2005, oh, one year before I was born, <laughs> yeah. you were selected to tour with the Lions. What do you, what are your memories of that tour? Um, it was a really difficult tour. We went to New Zealand. Um, I can remember we, we met up a few weeks beforehand, and, and I think we didn't anticipate how how much New Zealand were, were preparing and, or how much they wanted to win it. I think they were very, the whole country was very disappointed. England beat them in Dunedin in 2003 before the World Cup, and that kind of, with 13 men, that, that caused a problem. And then when England won the World Cup in 2003, um, it really fueled the the angst of the New Zealand public to win that that series, and we went there. And, and you know, as a team, as a group, we got a lot of things wrong. Um, sort of one of the things, you know, when you talk about sort of building a culture and building a team and building trust, um, we didn't do that well uh, as a group. And I think we're all accountable for that. Um, and when we went to New Zealand, uh, it was a really tough place to go. They they really are passionate about their rugby, and they gave it to us. Uh, they gave it to us in, in a big way. Um, I was very lucky to get uh, a test cap against Argentina before we went. Um, I played in the third test against New Zealand, and, but predominantly played in a midweek side, which was unbeaten. Uh, and, and we had some great games in, in that regard and, and some great memories and great characters. For, for me, probably the standout of that tour as a coach was Ian McGeekin, who was an incredibly passionate rugby man. He's a Surrey and McGeekin now. I'm very lucky to have spoken to him on, on quite a few occasions. He... I think really saved that tour for me as a person because you know, I didn't really see uh, an opportunity to, to play in, in the first two tests. Um, and I was playing in the midweek side and kind of feeling a little bit bad about things where, you know, he, he really put a positive spin on, on being a lion and what it meant and talked about his experiences previously. And he'd been a lion in the seventies and eighties and had been around it. And uh, when he, when he spoke, it made perfect sense that it was about sort of rugby and legacy and to be really proud of, 
what we were achieving. And, and although we didn't win the test series, in fact, we, you know, we, we, we were pretty poor in, in our test matches. Um, it's still a huge honor, you know, to, to recently they sent out some caps and some shirts to us. Um, again, test caps for, for the British and Irish Lions. And my little boy put it on and, and a very special moment really realizing how, how that can be and how important that is for, for young people all over the world. So it was a, it was a massive honor although it was a good learning experience and we didn't do well. That tour to New Zealand didn't go very well as you lost 3-0. We spoke to Sir Clive Woodward on the podcast a few months ago and he said that the Lions were a distraction from international rugby. You had people like Alistair Campbell there. Do you think the management got it wrong on that tour? I think we all got it wrong on that tour. Um, You know, I think... um, we didn't anticipate the way New Zealand were going to look at that that tour, and we got a lot of things wrong. Um, I think we were all accountable for that. Um, you know, I've spoken to some people before who are really proud of international rugby, and 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 you know, I, I haven't heard Clive's quote, um, but I have heard other people say, you know, international rugby takes precedence over to the Lions, and 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 I don't necessarily agree with that. Even even though you know the tour wasn't successful, I still think the Lions has a lot of. Uh, what makes rugby good as a sport um, and what makes people good as, as you know, as teammates. Um, international rugby, you really are focused on, on knocking lumps out of each other on a weekly basis when you're in Six Nations or summer tours. Um, and there's, you know, there, there's that element, whereas the Lions is very much about camaraderie, about, you know, coming together as a team, pulling a team together of great players, which is a challenge at short notice. So I, I think there's, there's, um, there's a lot to love about the Lions uh, and we we as a group got a lot of things wrong. So, what is it like touring with the Lions? A few months a few months earlier, you are smashing lumps out of each other's for your countries, and then you came together in one team. Did you get? Did you all get on, or do people stay within their friendship groups? Um, I think that's the that's the the, the joy of, of being a Lion and, and actually playing rugby. Um, I experienced it almost on a weekly basis because I played most of my rugby in, in, in England and then got selected to play for Ireland. Um, I can remember playing against Leinster at Welford Road in a game that was ill-tempered, shall we say. It was it was quite feisty. Um, and then having to get on a plane after that game with the Leinster team, you know, the single Leicester player, fly back to Dublin and go to a hotel where we joined up, changed our T-shirts and became Irish players to go back and play against six or seven of my teammates the following weekend in Twickenham. Um, so it's it's quite a strange dynamic, um, as you say, playing alongside someone in a sport like rugby and then the very next moment having to, to turn around, fly and, and join a different team and play against your teammates. Um, but that's what the Lions does. And that's that's what it's you know, that's what it's all about. Here at the Amethyst Academies Trust, we are incredibly ambitious for our schools and our pupils. And we believe that there is no ceiling on what can be achieved by anyone. Working in partnership with Penhall School and Tetnall Wood School, we are proposing to refurbish the beautiful Penhall Mansion, a grade two star listed building in Wolverhampton, into an exciting and professional specialist vocational college for young people aged 14 to 19 with special educational needs and disabilities. Changing the face of employability for young people with SEND, the college will offer specialist career pathways and in-house vocational learning experiences for students that will be open to the public. Students will be able to develop their skills, knowledge and flourish in confidence across a wide range of audiences. We need to raise £400,000 to refurbish the mansion and provide accessible and stimulated learning and working spaces for students and the community. We are relying on public donations, business relationships and support, no matter how big or small, to make this college a reality for our students. Donate today. Go to www.com sedgwick.aatrust.co.uk Sedgwick College Discover Bright Futures Oh, you must have played with some great jokers when playing for Ireland and the Lions. Which players were the best at jokes and pranks? What was the best prank you've seen? Oh gosh, I was very lucky. I played with some real pranks and generally generally, when when you look through any rugby team, you can sort of categorise them of, of the characters of what you're going to get. You're going to get like front row guys are generally pretty serious, pretty smart guys in my experience. They always get a hard time about, you know, kind of not being the cleverest because they're kind of the dumper trucks, but they're generally the smarter guys who have a dry sense of humour. Um, you, your second rows are tall and very detailed generally serious guys all about it and you get the back row 
sixes generally big tough guys all over the place number eight smart sevens can be cheeky number nines number nines are always the guys you want to watch out for they're always pulling pranks they're generally the smaller guys in the teams who, who are doing um, silly things but um wingers as well i, I had a austin austin healy was a teammate of mine at leicester and and a um he was a real character he was always pulling practical jokes and winding people up uh one of my favorite guys internationally was probably a guy called dunico callahan who was uh who is a good friend of mine and, and loved a practical joke dunica um his his party trick was you know maybe go on a, on a day off and we'll go into the kitchens with the chefs and make a beautiful cake as, as a birthday cake and then as he'd come out to present it to someone for their birthday, maybe in a restaurant or, eat, or on television, he would tend to trip up and smash his cake in his own face, um, which obviously created a little bit of <gasps> gasps from people who were around him. But um, he certainly didn't take himself too seriously. And, and um, he was a real character. He once, on our way to one of our biggest games for Ireland, the Grand Slam in 2009, he managed to cut all holes into the back of our T-shirts. Um, that our, we, were, we were designed to wear a special T-shirt to to travel in on, on on our travel day which was the thursday before we played on the, this game and we all, we all got our laundry and we all had massive holes and triangles cut out of the back of our t-shirts that we had to wear through the airport so we all had to wear our tracksuits zipped up very tight over the top of our t-shirts because we had no no backs in any of our t-shirts so yeah Dunica was a character <laughs> did you instantly knew it was him who pulled the of course fucking prank of course yeah he couldn't keep it he couldn't keep it serious he was always a um he was always laughing at it. And another colleague who was very, uh, loved his practical jokes was uh, Lewis Moody, who I know you know, Lewis. Lewis and I shared a house together probably from 2000 to about 2000, maybe before, maybe 1999 to 2004. Um, and that was quite amusing, sharing a house with Lewis. He loved a practical joke and he loved to uh, jump out of a cupboard and scare people. A cupboard? <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, he'd hide out of he'd hide anywhere. Lewis would hide behind curtains. He'd hide at the bottom of the stairs. He'd hide anywhere he could hide in order to frighten someone. He would hide. So he was brilliant at it as well. Sounds like some people forgot that they were adults. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes when you're with adults for a long period of time, you just need to become a kid again. If you could change one law of rugby, what would it be and why? The breakdown law. I don't like the breakdown law because it's killing the game. Um, I've thought about this thing is, so the law says that a player must be able to maintain their body weight, weight to, to jackle the ball, which means that if someone's tackled, you should be able to stand on your own two feet in order to pick that ball up. But what I see quite consistently, um, what's crept into the game is that referees and, and, the, and the lawmakers allowed people to go off their feet, which just makes it a dangerous game because then you're better off not having the ball um, you can't clear people out. Uh, and I think that is definitely one law that I would love to see changed. That was a bit boring. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> right. Okay. You then went to the 2007, one year after I was born, World Cup in France. Oh, France again. France again. Mm-hmm. What are your memories of the, that World Cup? Again. World Cups. Yeah. Yeah. So I missed the first one in 03. In 07, I think it wasn't a great experience in all honesty. We didn't, again, we made some mistakes as a team. Um, I was kind of on the, on the periphery of the team at that stage. Uh, and it was, it was a tough tournament for us. We had two games, which we were perceived very early against Georgia and Namibia. We were, we were, you know, hopeful on the back of probably a pretty successful six nations um, of being, you know, running away with those games. And we were given really tough games, which meant that, you know, we, we ended up in a, in a very tough game against France who beat us. And then we had to um, play against Argentina, who was a surprise package of that World Cup. Uh, and Argentina beat us as well in the Parc de Prince, the stadium I talked about having really fond memories of in 2001. Um, Argentina beat us in 2000. Well, we were chasing the game, but I, and I sort of believe if we if things had gone our way, we would have a... Uh, we would have won that game. Well, we would have won that game, but it, it was sort of due to needing points. We had to chase four tries and we didn't get it right, but we we got dumped out. So again, another unsuccessful tournament, but with some great teammates and some fun times. You then won the Six Nations Grand Slam of Ireland in 2009. This is the first time Ireland had won the Grand Slam since 1948. What has changed in that Ireland team to make make it successful? Uh, there, there was some really fine tuning that was done. I think Declan Kidney, who's now head director of rugby at London Irish or head coach at London Irish, I'm not sure of his title. He did a great job that year taking over. Um, he he really, again, built that trust in the squad. There was some fantastic open conversations and meetings had where 
we managed to kind of unify the team a little bit more than we probably did. Um, Ireland had won triple crowns and won a lot of games before 2009, but it had always fallen at the final hurdle. And, and I think he did a really good job of instilling belief, but also sort of getting one or two percent more out of the team, which in, in really tight games. And as we talked about the intensity of the Six Nations already in, you know, really intense games, it sometimes comes down to the bounce of a ball and, and, and you know, one centimetre. Um, and we certainly squeezed every drop that uh, that tournament. You became the captain of the Leicester and and also captain Ireland. What did that mean to you to be a captain? What and what sort of captain were you? Um, that was that was a um, a huge honour for me. I, I was asked to be captain of Leicester sort of on an on an interim basis in two thousand and. Uh, 2009, our club captain, a friend of mine called Martin Corey, got injured and didn't get selected. And, and I sort of captained the side and in his absence. And it was very easy because we had some fantastic players. And I'd also sort of had at that stage 12 years of experience. And captaincy wasn't something that that kind of I ever thought about or sort of a position that I wanted to be in. But I guess, you know, you, you do need to be a, a leader to be a captain. And the following season, uh, in sort of the 9-10 season, uh, I was asked to be club captain of Leicester Tigers and, and that was a huge honour because I don't think there'd been a foreign club captain of the club in, a, in a, over 120 years before that um, everyone had been sort of local or, or UK based so I was the first foreign national to be asked to do that and, and I took that as, as a, a huge compliment um, made me question myself really and my leadership style and what I wanted to do and again that sort of probably caused me to, to go down a route of looking into leadership and looking into captaincy and uh, I still I still think that I'm quite a, a people person my captaincy and my leadership style would very much kind of look after people and, and try and look after the team um but then you know rugby is a great sport that when things are going wrong you can really stand up and you can lead from the front as well as leading from the back so um i guess uh, you'll have to ask colleagues of mine that i captained what sort of a leader i was i like to think i, I kind of try to get the best out of people and my teammates and, and that was kind of what i focused on and as you say i captained ireland on, on the the tour to new zealand against the new zealand maori in 2000 2010, uh, and in my bathroom, I still have a little uh, placard memorabilia, a little pin that the, the New Zealand Maori captain gave me because, you know, again, I didn't ever aspire to be an Irish rugby captain. And I know it was a, a midweek game against New Zealand Maori, but but again, something that I'm very, very proud of. You went off tour with Ireland in 2010 to New Zealand and Australia. How does the rugby differ against the Southern Hemisphere teams and what makes them so good? Um, they, so I was very lucky to live in New Zealand when I was 16. I, I moved, I got, went, did a school exchange there for, for a few months and managed to play rugby down in, in Auckland Grammar. And, and I think they, they are really, really passionate, particularly New Zealand and Australia and, and South Africa. They've really got a, a probably, I would say, they used to have a better skill set than the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, I like to think that some of that is due to the weather. You know, when you're a young kid in New Zealand, you go outside, you stand on, on a field and, and basically you, you play rugby at all hours of the day and and, and it's fine. I, I see children playing rugby in, in the Northern Hemisphere. Generally, it's cold and it's wet and they're running around chasing the ball in, in sort of pods. Whereas the Southern Hemisphere, I think they've got a, a better understanding of the game, better climate, um, better understanding of coaching. And, and they teach kids really great habits from a very young age and they analyze from a very young age and, and they're very, very tough to play against. Um, so when you when you go to New Zealand, um, you know you're going to be in for, for some really great battles and I was in Irish teams for a long time that that kind of nearly beat New Zealand and when in some great games that we lost by one score um but we never beat them uh and it wasn't until recently when Ireland really sort of stepped their game up to the next level that that we, we've started consistently beating Southern Hemisphere sides you then went to the 2011 World Cup and won every game in your group beating Australia as well what are your memories of that World Cup yeah, great memories from that World Cup. And that was my last kind of outing, my last hurrah from an Irish point of view. I knew that my career was was beginning to a uh, slide and I, I was very lucky to play in, against the United States in the first game in, in that World Cup. Um, I'd actually torn my hamstring earlier in the week and I kind of thought oh, it'll be okay, I'll get through it. And, and that kind of set me back a little bit but um, I don't know if I would necessarily would have been picked anyway for, for the Australia game on, on the following week, which was... Uh, massive game probably one of the biggest games for Irish rugby in a while and we played it at Eden Park and everybody there was supporting us other than the Australian fans but all of the New Zealand fans were supporting Ireland and we we managed to put in a great performance again probably unexpected to beat Australia we, we beat Italy and we beat um, 
uh, USSR, I think it was, or, or Russia um, in one of the games as well. And came through our group and, you know, I think we were probably a little bit overconfident. We came against a very strong Welsh team in, in Wellington and the conditions were horrible and we made some mistakes and the Welsh were brilliant. And sort of, again, as we talk about very small, minute percentages, meaning a lot in sport, they were the, they were the side who, who got the rub of the green, the bounce of the ball that evening, and we lost in the quarterfinal again. So it doesn't bode well for Irish rugby, really. We've never been out of the quarterfinal stages. <laughs> I'm just celebrating a little about for Wales. Yeah, yeah uh, keep it down, Adam. It's not your <laughs> yeah. year. It's our year. Yeah, it sounds to me like, well, what? It sounds to me like your legs take a beating. <laughs> <laughs> I've taken many a beating. Yes, I, we've taken a beating. We've taken a physical, a physical beating and a mental beating. I, we've done, we've done it all. But it's um, that's that's sport. You win, you lose. That's that's kind of what we're, what you're about. Yeah. I sort of pop in and ask a question while we're kind of talking about Ireland because at the moment, Jordan Ireland seems to be on the up. They've beaten New Zealand recently. They um, did really well in the Six Nations. Do you see coming to the World Cup? Is it next year in France? Ireland have a good chance. Oh, look, you look at you look at Ireland's group in the World Cup and. I wouldn't want that side of the draw. You know, we've got the toughest teams in the world in our side of the pool. We've got, um, we've got I think, South Africa in our pool with us, which are who are the world champions and who are always amazing when it comes to the, the World Cup. Um, we, you know, if if you you get out of your group, you get the if you top your group, you get the runners up of France and New Zealand, and, and who knows who that's going to be? It could be France or New Zealand. So still, you know, you're going to have to play in your group and in a quarter final, you're going to have to play two of two or or three of the best teams in the world. Ireland are ranked number one in the world right now, and deservedly so. They've they've gone and they've built, and I think Andy Farrell, who's an, an Englishman, has done an amazing job with Ireland taking over from Joe Schmidt. But Irish rugby is certainly building and has been building for a long time. It's it's not the main sport in Ireland, or it was certainly never the main sport when I was a child. Um, it, there was sort of probably three or four sports that were ahead of it in regards to sort of playing percentages and even popularity. Uh, I think the fact that, you know, there was a really strong period from 2000 through to 2011 and with people like, you know, Keith Wood paving the way, Conor O'Shea for guys like Brian O'Driscoll and Paul O'Connell, Ronan O'Gara, now to Johnny Sexton and, and sort of the team and beyond Jamie Heaslip. Um, kids in Ireland now look at rugby as, as you know, something to be really proud of and, and that we can compete with the best in the world. And I think Irish rugby is going to be very strong for a long period on the back of the foundations that have been built. Uh, and I think it's about time we got out, got ourselves out of a quarterfinal. So although incredibly difficult, um, you know, against a France or a New Zealand in a quarterfinal, I think Ireland can do it. In 2013, you announced your retirement why did you decide to retire and was it a hard decision to make? I hope this isn't a sore spot. Um, no, this isn't a sore spot. This is a very, very, I had played professional rugby for 16 seasons. Um, so I was 35 years of age. Um, the position I played as a fullback was generally you needed to be quick. Uh, and I hadn't been quick for about three years um, before I retired. I was kind of my last couple of years, I, I had a really bad injury before the World Cup in 2011 on my foot. Another and, and one? Of, another one, yeah. I dislocated a cuboid in my foot, which again, wasn't a very common rugby injury and it oh. was an incredibly painful injury. So I had to get plates and screws in it my sounds, foot. It makes, so it, make, it makes me fall, when I was younger, falling down the stairs and landing, landing on my, uh, <laughs> which foot is this? Right. My right foot first <laughs> sound harmless. Well, it is, but again, it's all about perspective because you you have to appreciate that that falling on your right foot for you is horrible, and you don't want that. And breaking your right foot and having screws in in your leg that's that's equally horrible. But it's just perspective. And, and one of the things that I will say is that there's always someone worse. There's always somebody who has it worse. You know, a person who hears about me breaking my cuboid might have lost her leg or lost more. So, um, and it's not wrong to feel bad about spraining your ankle or hurting your right foot falling down the stairs either it's because it's it's i have relative. to crawl back it's, relative, it's relative to you so it's definitely definitely fair. i was dragging my foot around for weeks I, I didn't realize how much of a calamity you've had with injuries in um <laughs> rugby like, yeah I, well, like as your I said, butt feet have had enough yeah. I've had I've had eleven major operations where I had to go underneath um, through rugby. So I've had two shoulder reconstructions, which means they had to go in three times, a double bilateral groin repair, which was once my foot. They had to go put under twice. I had a, obviously my leg, which was twice. 
Um, had my hand done. I've had yeah quite a few operations through, through rugby. So it's 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 not a sport for all. It's not a, a sport for the faint-hearted, and particularly yeah. I suppose because, because I wasn't a, a, a stereotypical rugby player who were generally big and muscular. I I was more of a, a small and slight guy. Um, but it's it's again I, I would sort of recommend it to to everyone. Mm-hmm. So that I didn't I didn't mind retiring. I was, speed. I, I didn't mind retiring in 2013 because my body was probably telling me I needed to stop. Yeah, stop it! <laughs> While we're talking about injuries, I just want to come in with a, rugby's obviously a very dangerous game, but in recent years, with the work of ex players like Alex Popham, Steve Thompson, around kind of head injuries, do you think rugby's moving in the right direction to make it more safer for players? Yeah, yeah definitely it is. You know, I, I think. <sighs> you hear about those cases and it's absolutely terrible because, you know, friends of mine, colleagues of mine and, and, and player safety in Paramount is, is kind of what it's all about. Simply, we didn't have enough information back, back in, in the day. We, we didn't know exactly what, you know, sort of concussions looked like. And, uh, and, and well, I certainly didn't as, as a player. And I, and I never felt that I was pressured into playing games. I always wanted to play. I always wanted to not let my teammates down. And um, I, I sort of, probably maybe played on occasions when I shouldn't. And I, I certainly know teammates who definitely played when they shouldn't with concussions. But again, we didn't have the information and we didn't know. So we just thought we were doing the best thing for, for, our, for each other and for the team. Um, now I think the awareness is, is there. Um, and I think World Rugby is trying to do the right things. And, and that's debatable. I, I don't want to see the game changing um, other than changing that breakdown law, which is will make the game safer. Um, I don't want to see the game changing overly, overly too much, but I do want to see people obviously being safe and, and, and looking after ourselves. Now, there's an element of it's a collision sport, it's a contact sport, so that there's always going to be a risk or a danger. Well, let's try and mitigate that as much, much as, as possible. Your body should know. Yes, yes, there's always going to be that. But you, you know, you, you, as you said, you can fall down the stairs and hurt your ankles. So it's, it's, it's. Um, sometimes you're just unlucky. You then moved into coaching as part of the Leicester team. How did you find the move into coaching and how did the club support you with your move? Um, on yeah, it, it's, it's quite a strange one. I suppose, as I was saying, when, as you get older, you start kind of doing a little bit more helping out with the younger teams and stuff. And, and my transition into coaching was, was probably accelerated quite a bit. I was due to start working with the academy in 2014 and, and uh, one of the head coaches left. Uh, and I basically went from sort of turning up on day one to work with the academy to being involved with the first team and and it was a very steep learning curve and um, 2014 15 and 16 sort of those two seasons from 14 to 16 um was a real challenge um you know i kind of saw a lot of you know we talked about culture at the top top end i kind of begin began to see some of the the culture erode uh, and fade and some of the things that made leicester very successful in those periods was kind of not really paid attention to so to be part of the coaching setup in that period was was a real challenge although i felt it was a learning experience and, and you know was kind of managing to to get things going and my, my career as a coach on on the road um it was a tough time i think 17 18 was probably even tougher as an assistant coach because i really saw it you know kind of the wheels fall off uh and we we chopped and changed made a lot of a, a lot of changes over that period and um it culminated in kind of a lot of people leaving and being replaced and being sacked until I eventually took over as head coach, sort of, I think, in the 2018-19 season. In 2018, you became the permanent head coach of Leicester. How did you find that role? And is it something you enjoyed? Um, You know what? Being completely honest, it was... was I really wanted to do it. I felt very emotionally attached to Leicester, having been there nearly 18 years. I, I felt that there was a lot of things we were getting wrong that we needed to get right. That season itself, that 18-19 season that you talked about, was was um, was uh, a really tough season. And, and I think some of it was originally when I, when I took the role, I was an interim coach until Christmas. So for the first half of 18-19, um, I was told there was going to be another head coach coming in. And, and, I, and I didn't probably change enough things that I should have as a result of that. I didn't do the job that I probably should have and could have. Um, and as a result, kind of got myself behind where I needed to be for the back end of that season. That was a really tough season. We were in a relegation battle um, with Newcastle and, and we we um, we managed to stay up, which is something I'm, again, proud of, but more so thankful to work with some great people and some great players because I don't think we had a squad that necessarily wanted to fight for Leicester in, in that period, but we certainly had some amazing players that did who stood up on a weekly basis and, and we managed to keep ourselves up. So having been successful with a team, it was it was quite an eye-opener to, to be down scrapping for your survival in the premiership somewhere that Leicester had been sort of part of for the 
their entire history or the history of the league. Um, it was it was daunting, but again, I, I quite enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was a, a heavy workload, but it was something that I, I really thought was was important to do. Um, and then obviously we led into the nineteen twenty season, which was uh, a World Cup year again, and, and a really tough time because we sort of began to see the, the changes of a squad, and I began to sort of recruit guys that I really thought would be great for Leicester, guys that I admired and guys that I thought would add something to the team. Um, and halfway through the year, we get hit by COVID and we, we shut down and, and that was kind of paid to, paid end to, to the second season. So as, as a head coach, I kind of one of my biggest regrets is never actually having a full season as, a, as an out-and-out head coach. Um, but um, I think we did some amazing things in the, in the two years with some of the people I worked with in order to recruit a team that went on to win the premiership in 2021. You were then promoted to director of rugby in July 2020. How did that change come about and what did you have to do in your role? Um, so a slight change, it was, well, quite a lot of a change to be quite honest with you. So, so one of the things that I wanted to do as a, as a head coach was kind of more so on the field, looking after the actual coaching of the team. And as a director of rugby, I managed to bring in a head coach. Things that I found on my desk as a director of rugby were pretty unique in managing accounts and managing sort of the full systems, particularly during COVID. Uh, I ended up sort of having to make mass redundancies and, and there was a lot of off fields that I would choose not to do, but were kind of very much part of the, that needed to be done. Uh, so it's quite different. The director of rugby stuff is kind of more of an overview. The head coach is kind of very much on-field rugby. That role ended shortly later. Are you able to tell us why you left that role so shortly after being appointed? Yeah, well, so COVID hit uh, in June 20, well, sorry, in January, February 20. Um, and that season, they stopped playing games because of COVID and the club lost a lot of money. We were losing quite considerable amount of money on a monthly basis. There was no fans. Sort of players and staff had to take wage reductions in order to survive for that almost entire season. When the season opened back up in July, August of 20, we'd transitioned quite a few players out. So we had an opportunity to, to give a lot of young players, guys who you've seen come into the team now, give some game times and see what they're about and play them. Um, I had a new head coach come in and with in Steve Borthwick, who's, who's still there and who's kind of done a, a half a decent job with them since, since that. Um, but losing money and sort of my position wasn't going to be there as of in a year's time. Uh, the club turned around and told me, look, you're not going to be here in, in June. Uh, this was in November 20, so June 21, and, and I was free to leave if, if I so choose. Um, and after a long period, kind of being so loyal to a team for such a long period of time, I was particularly disappointed by the way we sort of we split up. But I think like anything in life, it's, it's again an opportunity for you to grow and get better. Uh, before we finish, we would like to play a game with you that... Yes, I love games. Yes. Um, the, game is play. Called, the game is called Wrong Answers Only. We will ask you a range of questions and you have to give us the wrong answer. Are you ready? I am ready. How many questions have you got? Uh, five. Okay, I'm going to give you the wrong answer every time. Okay. <laughs> Favourite place to go on tour? Mount Everest. <laughs> best player you ever played with Jesse James <laughs> highlight of your career parachuting <laughs> what is your favourite stadium to play at Bognor Regis <laughs> the best thing about Jordan Murphy is his hair <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that uh, every week on the podcast, we like our guests to ask questions to each other. So we get a guest to ask a question, but they have no idea who the question is going to be for. This week's question comes from our previous guest, former, which was former England football player, uh, manager, uh, Sam Allardyce, uh, who asked if you didn't become a professional rugby player, what job would you like to have done? Before I became a professional rugby player, I was actually going to join the Irish air corps so i was keen to fly things in ireland my father was in the army and i didn't had an interview for the irish air corps so i could have seen myself going down that route so a pilot or a helicopter pilot i think would have been something that i then might you'd have, have to worry about falling out of the sky <laughs> <laughs> good point good point yeah it was yeah fall jumping out of the sky it'd be all right um, um you ask whoever comes next week the question that you ask me that's a the best question I've ever been asked. 
True. If you could commit one crime that would eradicate it for the rest of a uh, humanity for the rest of time, what would the crime be? And see what they'd say to that, because I thought that was genius. Welcome back to the part of the podcast where you guessed the photo. Um, the answer was the football photo is Diego Maradona's famous hand of God goal against England in the quarter final of the 1986 World Cup, Argentina went on to win the game 2-1 and progressed to the semi-finals. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Jordan. We really enjoyed speaking to you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. You've been really great. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you both. Much appreciated. So, Alyssa, how did you enjoy the episode talking to Jordan? It was yeah, I I was mainly not only did I enjoy the the part where they talk about all the different World Cups, but like I I still it was beyond me how many times he got injured. Like, like ow. Yeah, like something like to that extent would very rarely happen in a sport, for example, like cricket. So. Now I know why my body why my why whenever I even think about playing sports, my body goes nope. <laughs> right, I hope the listeners. Or viewers, for example, on social medias, which I'll get to just now. Make sure to go follow us on TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. And you can also listen to us on Apple Music and Spotify. So, yeah. See you all next time. Take care. And try not to hurt yourself whilst playing rugby or whatever game you're playing. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Sports Social Podcast Network.